Like I said, and I think I say this pretty much every time I get up to speak for any long period of time, I don't, I'm not good at, at speaking to people. And, and so I know that that's how the Lord is, you know, he's with me in this because I couldn't do it without him. And I, I've hated speaking in front of people for the longest time, dating back to when I was a kid. And then in high school, how many of you had to take a required speech class? You remember that class? Yeah, that was like, that was like torture for 14-year-old me. Just get, yeah, require this kid to do a speech. But there was a bit of a breakthrough when my freshman or sophomore year, I can't remember what it was, but in my first ever speech class, there was a little breakthrough for me. I finally got a prompt that I felt, that I felt pretty good about. I mean, not at first, but the, the prompt was, you have to do a how-to speech. Any of you ever done a how-to speech? So you gotta, you gotta teach the class how to do something. But as a 14 or 15 year old you know, student in high school, I was like, what the heck do I know how to do? Like, I don't know how to do anything. You know, I make a frozen pizza, I can't bring an oven to the class, you know? So I was like, what do I know how to do? And then all of a sudden, like the, it was like the heavens opened up and I felt just this rush of like, you, you ever had a, just a great idea come upon you and you just know like, oh yeah, that's gonna, that is gonna go over well. I was like, I'm gonna make the perfect peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That's so easy, right? I, I, I got bread, you know, peanut butter and jelly. And I think, you know, all of us, to a degree, we probably think highly of ourselves when it comes to our peanut butter and jelly, like, right? I mean, you think you make the best peanut butter and jelly there is. The right bread, the right peanut butter to jelly ratio, all these different things, they matter. The right flavor of jelly. I mean, it all, it's all a factor in this equation. So, and I'll tell you the reason that I'm telling you this story, by the way. This has nothing to do with the message, but I just want you to know that right offhand. It's going to come around. It's all going to circle back. So I get ready to, to do this speech. The, the ideas are flowing. We have to submit our prompt before the end of class on like a secretive sheet of paper. I don't know why the heck they did that. That was, you know, not a good idea by the teacher. But we had to submit our prompt on a secretive sheet of paper. So I did. I submitted my prompt. I'm not going to say I was, like, being cocky about this, but I was a little confident. Like, there's the kids that try to impress the teacher, right? And they're like, I want to volunteer to go first, you know? And that wasn't me. I did not want to do that. But I was like, you know, I might volunteer to go, like, fourth or fifth. So I signed up. I'm like, I'm going to go, I think it was, like, fourth. So I signed up to go fourth in this list of how-to speeches, making the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich, showing the class, like, showing them what's up. So I'm like, I feel so good about this. And I get to class the day that we're supposed to give the speech, and the first person goes, the second person goes, the third person gets up there. And you're never going to guess what their how-to speech was about. They were going to make the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I watched as the entire class just, just with bated breath waited on their every word, laughing. It was engaging. It was a great speech. They made a great sandwich. They even invited a kid up, which I didn't think about. They even invited a kid up to come and taste test it. I was like, man, that is terrible. That just sucks. You took my idea. So I had to go up, of course. I had to give my speech. I made, a, made fun of myself at the beginning. I'm like, yeah, I'm doing the same exact thing. And then I invited somebody up, you know, just to be, just to be a jerk and be like, well, whatever. I guess I'm going to do the exact same thing as you anyway. So I did the exact same thing. Got a fine grade on the speech. But the reason I tell you that story is because months ago, we, we, we talked about, me and Monty, we talked about, hey, I'm going to be gone this such and such weekend in July. I'm going to have you preach. And here's the ideas of what you can do as a topic. So I look over, Jesus is all these different things. And from the list, I chose Jesus is the gate. And I'm sitting there over the last few weeks just kind of pouring over the scripture, reading it in different translations, reading it to my kids before bed, doing all these different things. And then finally, on Monday this past week, 
like, like a flood, all these notes just came pouring out into my, into my laptop. And I just felt so, I felt so good. I felt good enough to just like, I didn't even look through it. I sent it to Pastor Monty and, and just waited for his feedback to say, all right, here, go ahead. Good, you got the green light. And there's, of course, more prep than that. But I wanted to get his go ahead on my outline at least so that I could move forward with this, you know, this message. And of course, you know what happens. He's like, hey, I want you to, before you finalize your notes or anything, I want you to go back and listen to last week's message that I did on the way. And I'm like, oh, okay, the way, the gate. Oh, I see where you're going with this, Pastor Monty. So, so I listened to his message on the way, and as I'm reading through it, I'm like, man, these are my notes. As I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm listening to my message unfolding this past weekend because I wasn't here. I was on vacation, and so I'm listening to Pastor Monty talk about this, that, and the other, and like all these notes that I had written down, and I was like, well, great. What am I supposed to do now? And, you know, of course, he was like, yeah, I was glad that you picked the gate because I didn't know what I was going to go with that one. So it was, a, it was a frustrating moment, but I'm so thrilled that I get the chance to do this just because I think that, that God does have something for this. As frustrated as I was to think that, like, my message was the exact same as Monty's, I really think the Lord was moving in that way, was working in that way, just because he showed me something about the difference between the way. When Jesus calls himself the way, he showed me the difference between that and what the gate is, what it means for us today, why we need to know about it, why John decided to include it in his gospel, right? But before I get to that, I need to bring something up because I think that so often, on a serious note, so often I think non-Christians, non-believers, they end up hating the church, not because of anything that Jesus has done. Remember, Monty said that before. It's never Jesus. It's always the people in the church that cause other people to dislike our, our religion, our, our, our stance on everything. Christians are constantly dividing people away from the church in some way or another, right? And, and I think that that's, that's so fascinating. It's like people are justified as well because you see the way that Christians treat non-believers or even other Christians, and it doesn't make sense. It's like, that's not what Jesus did. That's not the way he talked. That's not the way he acted. That's not the way that he lived. And judgment from Christians, one way or another, I think we've all experienced it, Right? I think we've all experienced judgment from somebody who's a follower of Jesus or claims to be a follower of Jesus in a way that doesn't represent Christ at all. And the reason that I bring that up is because, well, I have a personal story to connect with that, actually. We had a church home in Sioux Falls. We went to a new church this one weekend, a bunch of us friends. We went to a new church. We were never going to go back, not because we didn't like it, not because we had low expectations, just because we already had a church home, right? So we were visiting this church for a friend to check it out with, you know, to check it out with him. And one of our friends made the, the gross mistake of wearing a hat to this church, and not only, did, we didn't think it was a mistake. We'd worn hats to church for years at this point. But before we left, one of the congregation members stopped him, stood in front of him, and was like, hey, if you ever want to come back here, don't wear that hat again. And so I'm wearing a hat today because you can wear hats in church. I want to tell you something. I feel like the Lord led me to this after that experience, which, by the way, was so uncomfortable. It was so uncomfortable, so unwelcoming. But I feel like the Lord led me to this. Do you think God can see past your hat into the posture of your heart? Isn't that a crazy concept? I mean, uh, well, David wrote it in the Psalms many times. God, he looks at the heart of man. 
And he's not looking at my hat, which, by the way, this, this hat is fire. Let's be honest. It's a Florida Marlins. I don't know if they're any good. I don't care about the Florida Marlins. But, I mean, God cares about your heart. Man judges the outward appearance, not God. God's looking for what's going on in here. When we talk about, we sing about surrender. He's not looking for anything but what's in here. And yeah, there's a physical posture of surrender and worship that's a different message for a different day. But are you surrendered in here? And if you are, why are so many non-Christians feeling judged by people who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Why are followers of Jesus not loving non-believers like their lives depend on it? And I'm not talking about the Christian being the one whose life depends on it. I'm talking about the other person. Their life depends on you loving them like Jesus. And we got to start living and acting like it, right? Unfortunately, that judgment from the church is, is far too common. And in fact, I would, I would be willing to say the majority, if you polled 100 people and asked them, hey, do you think that the Christian Bible says something about Christians are supposed to judge non-believers? I bet you the majority would say, yeah, it probably does, because that's the way they get treated. Why is everything so backwards from the way that Jesus lived? Why is everything so different from, from the way that he taught, from the example that he set? I think that comes from John chapter 10 in this parable that Jesus tells, or this example that he gives of, of what he is, of one of the many things that he said that he is, the gate. But before we get to that, I need to, I need to unpack, like, what's the difference between the way and the gate? Like, those seem like such similar concepts, and the gate, it, it's not just confusing to you if you're maybe confused by it. It was confusing to the people at the time. It was confusing to the people that Jesus was talking to. So I think the Lord showed me, and I hate to put words in his mouth, by the way. If anybody ever just shotguns at you and says, like, well, God told me this, hey, don't take that at face value, right? People, people are always putting words in God's mouth, and that's part of what I'm talking about. Christians, a lot of times, put words in God's mouth. They take scripture out of context. They take God's word out of context to fit the narrative of their own life, and it ends up killing people. It ends up destroying people. But I do believe that the Lord showed me this. That's why, I, that's why I qualify. I believe that the way is a path from A to B. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. He's making a definitive statement of who he is and what the way is. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. And Pastor Monty laid that out brilliantly by talking about all these other different religions that think that you can live a good life and still get to the Father, still get to eternal life. But that's not the case. Jesus is the only way. But the gate is so much different. It's not A to B. It's coming and going. The gate isn't something that you just go inside and you stay there. No. The gate is something that you actually walk out. It's called free will. We have the opportunity to go out into the world. And I want to talk and unpack this passage from John chapter 8, where Jesus, or John chapter 10, excuse me, where Jesus calls himself the gate. He says in verse 1, and by the way, if you have your Bibles, if you have your mobile device, open it up right now to John chapter 10. We won't have this on the screen. Obviously, the screens don't work today. And there's a really cool spider right here. I don't know if you can see it. Yeah. Yeah. So don't be distracted by it now that I pointed it out, okay? Don't be distracted. Just know that it's there, okay? I, I realized it earlier. I've been staying, steering clear, okay? Bethany, you okay? Yeah. <laughs> My wife hates spiders, so yeah, I'll try to bring it down later. 
Um, anyway, John chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus speaking. He says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. And the sheep recognize his voice. And they come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them. And they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. And those who heard Jesus, well, they, they didn't understand what he meant. They didn't understand what he was saying. So Jesus, as a loving God does, he explains it to them, right? He says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep didn't listen to him. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And we got a few characters in this story, don't we? We got the gate, which, you know, Jesus said, I am the gate. He gave that one away. We got the gatekeeper. We got the good shepherd. We got the sheep. And then we got the thief or the robber. So which one are we in the story? Anybody? Sheep. Yeah, there was a wrong answer to that question. I understand why nobody said anything, but man, the first service, like, sheep. Yeah, okay. The sheep. We're the sheep in the story. We're not the gate. We're not the gatekeeper. We're not the good shepherd. And a lot of times we confuse so many people in this world as the thief or the robber. But I'm here to tell you today, and we're going to talk about this more later, you can't see your enemy. You can't see who the enemy is. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy and you don't know when they're going to come. You can't see them coming. It's not a person. It's not an actual thief or a robber. It's the deceiver. It's the devil. He's the enemy. But too often we make people our enemy, which is exactly what I think Jesus needed to tell this story for. We're the sheep in the parable, but unfortunately, too many Christians, the people who call themselves Christians, they're too busy building gates and acting like gatekeepers. How ridiculous does that sound? She, a sheep that's posing as a gatekeeper, it makes no sense. But that's exactly the world that we live in. That's exactly why so many non-believers aren't feeling the love from people who claim to know Christ. Christians are building gates. And again, Pastor Monty, he told us that Jesus, Christianity, Christianity is Christ plus nothing, right? It, you can easily sift through all these different religions, and, and, and it's easy for us to say, yes, Jesus is the way. That concept makes sense to me. But what about this coming and going? What does that mean? What does it mean when sheep are, are coming and going and living this abundant, full life like Jesus just talked about? Jesus had an agenda. Jesus had an agenda, and unfortunately, too many sheep have agendas as well, right? Too many sheep are going against the agenda of God, which is that none should perish, which is that all should experience eternal life, right? And unfortunately, that's the world that we live in, where and you could say even that, man, Christians are just, they're judged by the, the worst version of a Christian, right? But that, that may be true, but 
when I asked in the beginning how many of you have been judged by Christians in your life, unfortunately, that's also been us at one point or another. Whether it was to somebody's face or whether it was behind a keyboard or whether it was behind somebody's back is irrelevant. We've been the one judging what we think is our enemy when really we've actually been letting the enemy work in our own hearts, building up these gates, preventing people from walking through the gate, preventing people from going into abundant, everlasting life. Are you loving people? Are you loving others? Are you loving non-believers like their life depends on it? That's the question for us today. Lives are hanging in the balance, but we've become too focused on making a point that we're failing to make a difference. And that hurts to know, but it's true. And windows of opportunity, they're closing. I truly believe that God is a God of second chances, and I believe that he can do anything, no matter the mess that we've made, he can do anything with the mess that we've made. He can make beautiful things from the most broken of ashes that could be. But what God doesn't do is reopen doors of blessing and opportunity that he gives us in moments. How many of you have lived with a regret of something that you wish, a conversation you wish you would have had, a kind word that you wish you would have given? You can't go back in time. You can't go back in time and do it over again. That window has closed, but guess what? Another one's gonna open. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's a God of second chances. And one reason that I know Non-believers are being absolutely pushed away. From, it's, not just, it's not just that they don't want to come to the church. It's not just that they don't want to experience walking through the gate. It's that they're actively being pushed away and prevented from coming in. And one reason that I know that's true is because you can see all over the landscape of Christianity, people who claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they think that they know everything. And I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else. It's so easy to let the knowledge of what the word says puff you up. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, knowledge puffs up. Another translation says that knowledge makes us feel important. Christians are becoming way too known for what they're against rather than who they're for. And it's sad to watch unfold because we have one enemy. Your enemy is not the person that has a stance on Facebook that you want to just comment and you want to sit there in your house and you want to type back and you want to type out all the reasons that they're wrong. That person that you're typing to is not your enemy. Your enemy is the thief. Your enemy is the robber, the one that steals, kills, and destroys, remember? Really, a lot of times our enemy is ourself. It's the spirit of religion. The spirit of religion within our hearts, it, it seeps in like a poison. It gets in as we, as we read the word, we think, oh, I, I, I didn't know the Bible said this about this topic. I can't wait to bring this in, in, into my next social media debate. I can't wait to, bring, wait to bring this up to the next person that says something that I disagree with. That's the way that religion thinks. That's the way that this spirit of religion has poisoned our hearts and our minds our enemies, not flesh and blood. Jesus made this abundantly clear in this crazy story in, Ma in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus does one of the greatest miracles ever. He heals a man born blind. He gives this man sight. He gives him the ability to see, and he'd never been able to see before. And at that time, people would have thought that this man was born blind because of his sins or the sins of his father or his father's father or whatever, the sins of his family. They would have thought that he was born blind because of sin. But Jesus corrected that, and he said, no, he was born blind so that, the, that I may be glorified, that God would be glorified. And Jesus does this miracle, 
and, and the disciples are, are in awe, and, and the man is in awe. The people are in awe. But do you know who's not in awe? The, the religious leaders, the people whose hearts are poisoned by rules and regimen. They're upset because, first of all, Jesus did this miracle at a time they didn't, they didn't agree with. They didn't want him to do this miracle at the time. And, and they didn't believe that this man was worthy of that miracle. Let's just be honest. They didn't believe the man was worthy of that. And so they get all upset at Jesus. And Jesus, in his humility, he says something to the man with the religious leaders listening. He knew they could hear him. But he says this to the man in John chapter 9, verse 39. He says, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they're blind. Some of the Pharisees standing nearby heard him. It wasn't an accident. And they asked, are you saying we're blind? That was a rhetorical question, but they, they wanted to trap Jesus. They're constantly looking for ways to trap him. And Jesus says, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Do you see what knowledge does to our mind, to our ability to see clearly? You claim that you can see, but you can't because you haven't opened the eyes of your heart. I can open blind eyes easily. Jesus showed it. Jesus showed that he can open blind eyes easily. What he, can, what he can't do, apparently it was convinced these Pharisees that they were truly blind in their heart, in their spirit. In other words, I think what this story in scripture shows us is that there's far too many sheep like the Pharisees that are building up these gates with their knowledge. They're building up these gates with their understanding of the word. They're becoming these religious titans that seemingly know everything, but they're not doing anything with it other than judging and condemning and bringing people to a point of feeling less than. They're not loving like Jesus at all. And they saw Jesus how he loved. They watched him do it and they hated him for it. But James, the brother of Jesus, tells us in, in his, uh, his book, James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's such a simple instruction. And James, the brother of Jesus, I think that's so fascinating, right? Because we know from other parts of Scripture that Jesus is the word incarnate, isn't he? Jesus is the word. So what James, who was Jesus' flesh and blood brother, born of Mary, James says, do not merely listen to Jesus. Don't merely listen to him. Do what he says. Are you living a life like Jesus of unconditional love or one puffed up with knowledge and self-deception? Are you living a lie? Are you building and constructing gates outside of the gate? and preventing people who don't know Jesus from entering the flock, from entering into abundant, everlasting, eternal life? Are you loving others like their lives depend on it? Remember, knowledge isn't bad. Reading the word is good. We talk about it all the time here at Meadows Church. 10 minutes a day for the rest of your days will change your days, and it will. But if all you do is let it puff up, if all you do is let it become something that you just beat over the head of your enemy with, you're not bringing life to anybody. You're only bringing death and destruction. Are you loving non-believers like their lives dependent or are we just building gates, judging them? When really, I mean, Christians judging non-believers, this may surprise a lot of you. That's not Christians' job. That's not our job. 
Our job is not to judge non-believers. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it, Paul said it, and I'm gonna unpack that for you just so you know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus in Matthew 7, verse one, he says, do not judge others and you will not be judged for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. So imagine that. If you judge harshly as a Christian to non-believers especially, what are you expecting in return? Are you expecting to win one for the kingdom? All that it's gonna lead to is you being judged harshly. And again, I'm talking to myself as much as anybody. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, he says this, it isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, but it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. Isn't that interesting? We're not supposed to judge people outside the church, but within. And, and what is that picture? That picture is a picture of a judgment of fruit. Can you see fruit in somebody that has claimed Jesus as their Lord and Savior? If somebody says, I choose to follow Jesus, if somebody gets up on this stage and is baptized, but their life looks no different, and they're, all of a sudden they're out building gates in front of the gate, that's a fruit that we're supposed to judge. That's rotten fruit. That's poison. And if we go to a fellow believer and say, hey, you gotta stop. You gotta stop doing what you're doing. You're building gates and people can't get into the, to the sheepfold. People can't get in to the flock. People are being prevented from the gospel story because of you. That's what we're supposed to do for people within the church. People who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, iron sharpening iron, right? That's what Proverbs says. Proverbs says iron sharpens iron. As one man sharpens another, iron sharpens iron. That's accountability, that's exactly why I talk about it's so important for you to consider a purpose group because we need accountability. Otherwise, we're letting the world shape our view of the world. And that seems like a pretty innocent statement, right? But in, in the end, it can have eternal consequences for somebody else. If you hear the way that one person interprets scripture and you take it as gospel and you don't check it by the actual word and what it says, you might be leading people to a gate that leads them away from the way. You might be leading people to a gate that doesn't offer abundant life. You might be leading people to a gate that is not the gate. It's not Jesus. And I think over time, those things can build up because it's so easy to fall in line with certain political agendas. It's so easy to fall in line with certain worldly ways of thinking that certain things are okay, that certain things are okay to say to people and use the Bible as a way to back it up. That's the worst, isn't it? When people slam you with scripture and they say, the Bible says you can't do this. You're not going to heaven because you did this. That's the worst. And it's the worst representation of Christ that you could possibly see. It's the worst. And I think that that's exactly the problem with Christians today. Why do followers of Christ spend so much time and energy building these gates, acting as gate, gatekeepers, when that's not what we're meant to do? And I want to give you some examples of what this looks like. Let's just say the gate that is Jesus is over here. We get that spider is getting up there, but so we'll put it back over here. But the gate is over here. And this gate right here says, well, unless you have a certain outward appearance, you don't fit in. You won't be accepted. And this gate out in front of that one says, we don't accept gay people in this place. And the gate outside of that one says, if you've had an abortion, you're not welcome here. And the gate outside of that one says, if you're addicted to pornography, you can't be redeemed. 
and the gate outside of that one, you screwed up again. There's no way back in. Leave. The gate outside of that one, you're a criminal. You, you can't belong to this family. There's no criminals welcome in this family. All of a sudden, all these gates have been built up outside of the gate, not because Jesus wanted them to be built, but because in our free will as sheep, we decided to put them up. You'll never, ever win an enemy to Christ, ever. Why spend time making enemies? Why waste time, if I can say, making enemies? Because you'll never lead them to the Lord, ever. If someone's clearly lost and living a life of sin, wouldn't you want to show them the love of Jesus that you received? Why in the world would you choose to condemn them when you stood at the altar one time in your life and confessed your sin to God and received his grace and mercy in full? And then you go and abuse that gift instead of giving it to somebody else. Humility is the way forward. I love that statement. I can't take credit for it, but I've written it down, I don't know how many times over the last two years. Every time I see anything about humility in Scripture, I write it in my, in my notes, my journal notes that we have. And, and the reason that I write that down is because I have to check myself every single day. And you'd be shocked at how much humility comes up in the Word. But we have to check ourselves every single day. Am I, am I living a life that's building up gates preventing people from receiving the gospel, the good news of Jesus? Or am I leading people by the way that I live? Am I leading people by showing the humility of a sheep that listens to the voice of the good shepherd and lets him lead the way? Not me leading the way, him. He's the good shepherd, remember that? He's the good shepherd, not me. And humility, don't, don't get this twisted, okay? I bring up all these examples, these worldly examples, and I think a lot of people would say, well, Obviously, you know, obviously this is one of those churches where, you know, sin is just okay. Sin is, sin is something that you look past and you just, everyone's welcome, everyone's accepted. And I, I hate how that has gotten twisted over time. I hate that. Because Jesus is a, a king of love and acceptance. Amen? And if Jesus is the king of, of love and acceptance and grace and mercy, but having this view towards sin viewed as apathy towards sin, it just, it boggles my mind. Humility is not apathy towards sin. It's the advancement of God's kingdom through that grace, through that mercy, through that forgiveness, through gentleness, through kindness. That's what it is. Not telling you not to hate sin. I'm telling you not to hate the person that's in the sin. Because you yourself, me, all of us, we've all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God, amen? It's so hard to walk a perfect life, even though in Scripture we're challenged, we're challenged to holiness, we're challenged to righteousness, we're challenged even to perfection in Scripture. But you're never going to lead an enemy to Christ if you build up a gate and say, I'm on this side and you're on the other, and that's how it's going to be. That's deadly, and we have to start seeing it as deadly. And there's no greater example of Jesus showing what it looks like for humility to lead the way forward. For this example that we talk about, well, humility just sounds more like apathy to sin to me. Jesus showed us an example that I think is gonna turn that argument on its head. And it comes from John chapter eight. 
The heading in my Bible calls it just simply titled Woman Caught in Adultery. And this is such a powerful story. It's such a powerful story of humility, of how people build up gates and try to literally kill people instead of letting them in to the true gate. John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. What I find interesting about this, just to pause there for a second, is that John, who wrote this gospel, he says at the end of his gospel account, he says that if everything that Jesus said and did was recorded, not enough books in the world would be able to contain it. And what I find interesting about this particular piece of the story is that he says Jesus sat down and taught them, but he doesn't say what he was teaching them. Because what Jesus was teaching them was completely overridden by the example that he was about to set in real life. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. I'm going to pause again because I hear that there was a woman, a woman caught in adultery, but where's the guy? Isn't that interesting? Where's the guy that was caught in adultery with her? They didn't bring him, I imagine. I don't know this for a fact. I imagine he was part of their group trying to catch her in this act, trying to get somebody before Jesus so that they could not only kill that person and prove that what their law said is true. Justifiably by the law, they were meant to stone anyone caught in adultery. They were meant to be killed. So that was justifiable by their law. And so they try to trap Jesus because they, they not only want to, to stone this woman to death, but they also want Jesus to back down from the sin so they can say, he's pro-adultery. Hmm. We knew it the whole time. He's pro-adultery. He's not in alignment with our law. He also needs to die. That's blasphemy. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. It sounds so silly knowing what we know now more than 2,000 years later. But Jesus... Mm. what the religious leaders at this time didn't realize is that they weren't bringing this woman caught in adultery to meet her maker. They weren't bringing her to her death. They were bringing her to everlasting life. They put her before the only one that could give her true life, and they didn't even know it. They betrayed themselves so they say this to Jesus. They're trying to trap him after they put this woman caught in the act of adultery in front of the crowd. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Picture this scene. It's so often that scripture gets dehumanized. Imagine if, if a bunch of people just brought in a woman right now and did this. This, this was a, a bizarre event unfolding before these people's eyes. This woman probably trying to get away, probably screaming, probably pleading for them to stop, pleading for her very life because she knew the consequence, probably naked, the most vulnerable position that she's ever been in. She gets brought before Jesus. And these religious leaders are saying at their gate, all right, we've reached the gate of adultery. It's at this juncture here where this woman should die. Jesus, what do you say? So what does he do? He gets down. He starts writing in the dust. 
which is such a weird thing to do. And remember I said that, John, he said that if everything that Jesus did were put into an account, not, no books, no amount of books in the world could contain it. And even in the short gospel that John gives us, one detail that he doesn't tell anybody is what Jesus was writing in the dirt. Isn't that interesting? And none of the gospel accounts say what Jesus wrote in the dirt that day. None of them. There's plenty of speculation from scholars throughout time. But it's such an interesting response to the situation that Jesus is in, right? I mean, we've seen him do crazy stuff before, like spit in the dirt and, and make some kind of mud to put over the blind man's eyes and heal him. We've seen him do a lot of weird things, crazy things, things that don't make sense. But in this moment, in this frantic moment, he bends down, he starts writing in the dirt. And even though we don't know what he was writing, we know that he was about to say something life-changing, not just for this woman, but for you and for me and for all of us, for anybody that wants to come through the gate. This is what Jesus said. After they kept demanding an answer, he stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stoops down again. He starts writing in the dirt again. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. It's one of the most powerful statements of all time. And do you know why it's so powerful in this moment? Because who was the only one in that group of people that had the right to pick up a stone and throw it? Jesus the one writing in the dirt, the one offering mercy and forgiveness and kindness. So when the accusers heard this, it smacked them in the face like it might smack some of you right now. They slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Jesus, the only one that could rightfully pick up a stone and execute this woman by the order of the law. And this woman, in her sin, in her shame, caught in the act, what does Jesus say to her? He says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. Jesus says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. It's important to understand the order of events here, right? We sing these things, we say these things, we read these things in scripture, but do we really believe that mercy triumphs over judgment? Do we really believe that God's kindness leads to repentance? Because that's the order of operations that Jesus showed us. Unfortunately, too many Christians have spent so much of their lives building up these gates, saying that it's repentance that leads to my kindness. It's not the way it's supposed to be. God's kindness leads to repentance. And yes, repentance is important. It's important for us all. It's important for us all. If we say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and the treasure of our lives, we have to stop going this direction, whether we're building gates or whether we're wandering non-believers, and we have to turn the other way. There's no other option. You have to repent and turn. That was the message of John the Baptist. That was the first message publicly of Jesus. Repenting is important. 
But repentance without kindness and mercy and grace, that's not Jesus. That's the spirit of religion. Jesus led this woman to the gate. And when she heard the voice of the good shepherd, she started walking towards the gate. She started listening to the voice of the good shepherd. And that's the same opportunity that you have today. If you've never received that grace, if you've never received that mercy and kindness and forgiveness and unconditional, all-inclusive love, today's the day. If you're a follower of Christ, today's the day to stop being a gatekeeper. Today's the day to stop building those gates and keeping people from entering in. And it's time to take on the humility of the sheep and start listening to the voice of the good shepherd, walking in humility, advancing the kingdom through humility. If you're not a follower of Christ today, I'm so glad that you're here. There's a gate that offers redemption. There's a gate that offers countless second chances, a gate that like Jesus said, it offers a fullness of life, an abundant life. And Jesus' testimony for you today is death to life. Jesus' testimony is resurrection from the grave. Jesus, what we believe and what you need to believe in order to enter that sheepfold, in order to enter that gate, is that Jesus Christ is the savior of the world because he took the weight of sin and shame on his shoulders and he took it to the cross and he took it to the grave and he left it there forever. And that's your testimony today. It can be your testimony today. Death to life, life everlasting, life abundant. I wanna pray for us, but before I do, I just want you, if you feel prompted to action today, I want you to write it down on that green connect card and just say either I choose to follow Jesus for the first time or I want to recommit my life to following Jesus. Or maybe you want to maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you want to take that next step in your walk with the Lord and say, "Look, I'm turning the other direction. I am going to actively take a stand against the sin that's in my life and I need your help." If you want to surrender today, write it on your card. Come meet with one of the prayer warriors after the service. Bring it to them. Jesus is the only one that can change your life. And if you're watching this message online, you can do the same thing. Send us a message. Send us an email. Whatever the case may be, type I choose Jesus in the comments. Give us a way to get in touch with you, to get a hold of you, because we know that we can't do this alone. We can't walk this life, walk in this faith alone. There's, sheep aren't meant to be alone, are they? They're meant to be part of a flock, part of a family. Jesus, you're so good to us. I thank you for setting such an example that was so radical against the spirit of religion that it pierces our hearts even here today. Where are your accusers? Where are they? Jesus, somebody needs to know that today, that you don't accuse them, that the accuser is a thief and a robber trying to steal, kill, and destroy, but that's not who you are. I'm praying that somebody receives that love today, that unconditional love that only you can give, Jesus. Have your way in our hearts. Continue to show us over and over again how good you are. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.